How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. I'm going to talk today with David Marchick. David Marchick has written an incredibly interesting book about a subject that isn't written about as much as it should be, which is the peaceful transfer of power between presidents of the United States. His new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, An Oral History of America's Presidential Transitions, comes about as a result of some project that David was leading for the last year or so. Uh, David is somebody that has had a wealth of experience in government. He's worked in the Clinton administration in several positions, including the White House. He's also worked at Carlisle Group, I should disclose, as an incredibly valuable member of the senior management team. And he's now the new dean of the business school at American University. David, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, David. So how did this come about? I mean, what made you say, I want to do a book on presidential transitions? What was the effort that led you to put this book together? So I was working as the director of the Center for Presidential Transition, which is a nonprofit effort it's part of the Partnership for Public Service in the last transition. And I signed on in the summer of 2019, thinking it would be an interesting project, but not knowing that we would be facing four crises during the 2020 election, an economic crisis, a global pandemic, a racial reckoning, and a political crisis with the first time a president of the United States refused to recognize the outcome of the election. So our work was really focused on making transitions better, faster, and smoother because the peaceful transition of power is one of the bedrocks of our democracy. I hosted a podcast where we studied every single modern transition from Carter forward, plus the historic transitions like Buchanan to Lincoln, Hoover to Roosevelt, and we turned that into a book. And we had some amazing guests, including people like David Rubenstein, who talked about the Carter transition. Well, you had better guests than that as well. But let me talk about uh, the first transition. George Washington transitioned to John Adams. Was that a very peaceful, easygoing uh, transition? It was a transition, which is the remarkable part of it. And Ken Burns you know, highlighted on the podcast and in the book that we've had some 240 years of peaceful transitions which is a record for any democracy around the world and the envy of the world. There have been some smooth transitions. There have been some awful transitions, uh, but there have always been a transition. When John Adams transitioned to Thomas Jefferson, it wasn't quite as polite as the Washington to Adams transition. What did Adams do? Did he show up at the uh, transition or the inauguration? Actually, there have been four times when a president has not showed up for his successor's transition. John Adams. John Quincy Adams, I'm not sure if there's something in the Adams family, uh, Andrew Johnson, and Donald J. Trump. The election between Jefferson and Adams was obviously highly contested. 
went to the House. It was one of four elections in history that were too close to call. And it was a bitter, bitter election. And no, Adams did not show up. And um, there was not love between the outgoing and incoming. Now, perhaps the most difficult transition of all, or most dangerous, you could argue, until the Trump transition was the Abraham Lincoln transition. James Buchanan was the 15th president of the United States, and uh, Abraham Lincoln was coming into office. Can you describe briefly why that was so difficult? So it's by far the worst transition in history, and the circumstances are just jaw-dropping. So Abraham Lincoln is elected in November of 1860, and between the election and the inauguration, seven states seceded. Buchanan was paralyzed. Half the Buchanan cabinet basically sympathized with the South, sent arms to the South. Congress was dysfunctional. And unlike today, when there's communication, Lincoln was in Springfield, Illinois. And it took him 13 days on a train trip to get to Washington. And so you had total dysfunction in the government. The country split apart. And another president was elected, Jefferson Davis in the South, who also took a train trip throughout the South. And Lincoln took this train trip 13 days from Springfield to Washington, which became his transition. Along the way, he met with future cabinet officers, including his famous team of rivals. And he found his voice. As you know, David, during the general election campaigns back then, they really didn't give speeches. And Lincoln gave over 100 speeches on his train trip, stopping these tiny little towns where hundreds and thousands of people showed up. In New York, they had 250,000 people. In places like Buffalo, tiny little town, 100,000 people. Lincoln found his voice. He changed. He had his own transition. He grew a beard. And essentially, the themes that became part of the Lincoln presidency, including the famous themes of the Gettysburg Address, were tested and improved and developed on this train trip. So Lincoln uh, obviously had to deal with an assassination threat as well. And he did get into Washington and did survive the transition. But what happened to Mr. Buchanan? He just faded away? He faded away and went into the sunset. Um, you know, Lincoln, it's interesting. There was a fellow named Alan Pinkerton, who was his security detail. And they found out about several assassination attempts. You know, Lincoln took this train trip. He didn't go into the South because there were so many assassination attempts. He did go into Southern Ohio, places like Cincinnati, which is just across the, the border from Kentucky, essentially to speak to folks in the South and to keep the border states from seceding. But they found out that there was an assassination attempt um, south of Baltimore on the Havre de Gras River. So what happened is he was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, meeting with the governor. He slipped out of the back of the building, put on civilian dress, and got on a commuter train into Washington in advance of when the special, his presidential train, was supposed to run, and then announced that he got to Washington. So the assassins that were just south of Baltimore basically missed the train. And then they were eventually caught and hanged. So let's go forward to another transition that was quite complicated, the Hoover transition to FDR. Did those gentlemen get along very much? And what did Hoover try to do uh, during the transition? So let's look at what was happening in this time. We're three years into the Great Depression. Actually, the Great Depression peaked at the time of the transition in late 1932. You had 
unemployment reach its peak. You had bank runs in 25 states. Hitler came to power. The Reichstag burned. And meanwhile, there was no collaboration between Hoover and Roosevelt. They hated each other. And Hoover looked at Roosevelt and thought he was of feeble mind and body and had disdain for him. He didn't think he was up for the job. They did meet twice and they spoke on the phone once. Roosevelt distrusted Hoover so much that he would not meet with him personally. And Hoover essentially lectured Roosevelt. You don't know what you're doing. You need to abandon the New Deal. You need to adopt my policies. And there was little cooperation. Um, actually, this, the Attorney General and the Secretary of State did cooperate and gave him advice on foreign policy, but there was very little cooperation. I interviewed a historian named Eric Rauschway, who wrote a wonderful book called Winter War, which is about the transition of 1932. And I asked him what the consequence of this lack of cooperation was. And he said, more banks failed, more people lost their houses due to foreclosure. We had a food crisis, so there was less food on the table. People died. And as a result, the Great Depression and the economic hardship that Americans faced was prolonged because of the lack of cooperation. But the lack of cooperation was that Hoover wanted FDR to basically adopt the Hoover policies. FDR didn't want to do that. And as your point that if Hoover had not tried to promote those policies so much, FDR could have had his policies ready to go and maybe told the American people they were going to happen right away. Absolutely. For example, Merrill Eccles, who was then the head of the Federal Reserve, and Roosevelt were both trying to push Hoover to call a bank holiday. There were bank runs in 25 states. People were losing their savings and losing their houses. And the only way to stop that was to essentially have bank holidays and create confidence. Hoover refused to do that. He thought it was a faulty policy. And he thought the policies that FDR was going to adopt were weak and terrible ideas. So he basically didn't cooperate. And his only idea of the transition was trying to talk FDR out of the New Deal. And Rauschway wrote this book. And I asked him, why do you write a book? There are 10,000 books on Roosevelt. And he said, well, I felt the 100 days before the election were as, if not more important than the famous 100 days after the election. And as you know, David, the 100 days after the election have been studied over and over again by historians. So let's talk for a moment about the transition between uh, Harry Truman and uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, there's a tradition that the president of the United States incoming goes to the White House and goes up Pennsylvania Avenue or down Pennsylvania Avenue, depending on your perspective, uh, for the inauguration. What was it like when Truman, who had once urged Eisenhower to take the Democratic Party nomination, what was it like at that time? And why were they so frosty towards each other? You know, it's confusing because they had actually worked together prior to the election and had a good relationship. And basically, Truman felt that Eisenhower had betrayed everything that he thought he stood for. Truman actually, as you know, he was vice president for some 80 days before he became president. Roosevelt kept him in the dark, including about the nuclear bomb. He dropped the bomb on Hiroshima or made the decision, you know, 130 or 140 days after, basically the equivalent of, a, of the period of a transition. So at the end of his presidency, he basically said, I don't want what happened to me to happen to the next guy. And so he reached out to both Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson and said, I'd like to invite you into the White House. I'd like to brief you. I'd like to have my cabinet brief your advisors and help either one of you get ready. Stevenson said yes, and Eisenhower said no. He said it would be inappropriate, and I don't want to work with you. So there was very, very frosty relations between them. 
similarly to Hoover and Roosevelt, in fact, they hated each other so much that in the famous car ride up to the Capitol, they didn't speak. Roosevelt tried to make small talk with Hoover. Hoover wouldn't talk to him. And so Roosevelt just decided, I'm going to just smile and wave to the crowd. And, you know, Ken Burns famously said that the most important policy that Roosevelt had was his smile and his optimism. And that changed the direction of the country. And that's an example. Now, the first transition I kind of remember was the Kennedy transition. President Kennedy came in and succeeding Eisenhower. I guess I read about it later. I didn't probably remember it at the time. Kennedy didn't have a, a big team. Uh, he'd asked Clark Clifford to write a memo, and he'd asked Richard Neustadt to write a memo about transition. There was no team of people. There was no pre-election transition. Can you describe how bare bones the Kennedy transition was? I think you just did it. And, and David, you know, Kennedy inspired you. And I remember I asked you about this on the podcast. They didn't do much. They really didn't want to look presumptuous. They didn't really plan. He had a few memos. Uh, he had a Harvard professor write up, you know, a few papers. But they basically made it up post-election until the Carter administration, which you were part of the Carter campaign. And Carter was the first president that really devoted staff and resources to presidential transition planning because I remember I asked you on the podcast, you remember what you said? No. He was an engineer. He was a planner. You're right. And yes. that's why he thought it made sense. But at the point, as I recall it, uh, President Carter, or to be President Carter, then Governor Carter, was allocating campaign funds to pay for the pre-election transition because the U.S. government did not at that time provide pre-election uh, transition money. Is that right? That's right. Let me tell you the story of Jimmy Carter a little to someone who lived that. So Carter was governor of Georgia, as you know. And in Georgia, the cabinet really is the key, not the White House staff. So he ran as an insurgent and he secretly asked Jack Watson, who was a former law partner, to set up a transition effort. And he said, I'm going to give you staff and resources. Watson pulled together a group of 50 or so people. There was only one problem with the transition effort. Do you remember what the problem was? Well, yes. The problem was that Jack Watson hired a lot of very impressive people with great resumes, but they didn't talk to the campaign people. And so the campaign people are killing themselves to get the guy elected. And then they didn't know what Jack Watson was all about. So then about a week before the election, stories started appearing in the New York Times, and the Washington Post that said Carter's going to plan this, Carter's planning this. And the campaign had no idea what was going on. And you and Stu Eisenstadt were running the domestic policy for the campaign. And I remember Stu describing the story that said he went to Carter and said, where are these stories coming from? This is eight or nine days before the election. And Carter said, oh, I have a transition operation. You didn't know about that? And he said, no, I didn't. So that created a clash between the campaign and the transition, where the campaign people said, we're the ones that got Carter elected. We deserve to lead the government. We know what we're doing. And the transition people said, the campaign people are political hacks. They don't know what they're doing. We're the smart people from Washington, and we know how to run a government. And there was a clash over staff, over ideas. And Stu Eisenstadt, I asked him what the implications of this clash was, and he said it imperiled the first year of the Carter presidency, if not more. And you remember Carter didn't appoint a chief of staff. He had kind of a, a loose organizational structure. Stu, who was one of his most important aides, worked on the campaign for two years, didn't even know what job he was going to get right before inauguration, and it was total chaos, and that hurt Carter. 
So for those who are listening who may be horrified about what they're hearing, have we not changed the laws so that now the federal government provides money for the pre-election transition? And who is most responsible for that legislation? So the legislation was actually adopted first in 1963, a fellow named Dante Fassell, congressman from Florida, I'm sure you remember him. He sponsored the first presidential transition legislation. The reason he sponsored it was because the Kennedy-Nixon election was so close. And Nixon had some people around him that maybe weren't the best people and basically said, you should contest the election. Don't recognize the outcome. Let's go to court and try to mess up Kennedy's election. Nixon, not a paragon of virtue, said, I won't do that. It would hurt the country. It hurt the United States. And we need to recognize Kennedy's election. And so the next day, Nixon actually recognized that Kennedy won and wished him luck. As a result of that close election and the nervousness that Congress had that someone could actually contest the election, Congress passed legislation to create this framework for presidential transitions. And it's been improved over time. And essentially what it does is it creates staff, it creates space, they get technology, and they get access to briefings from the government from the existing administration to prepare the incoming with support from the outgoing. And that legislation has been amended five or six times since 1963 to improve the art of transitions. And there's still some work to be done. David, uh, let me ask you this. I don't think you addressed this in the book, but other governments have transitions that seem to be very quick. In other words, the British prime minister comes in one day after the, the previous one leaves. They don't seem to have elaborate transitions. I don't think they do in France or Germany. Why do we need such elaborate transitions? Because in the UK, basically, there's a very, very small number of people that change, the prime minister and the ministers and maybe one aide in each ministry. In the United States, the entire government leaves. So 4,000 political positions leave and a new president needs to appoint 4,000 new officials, 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the Senate. So the structure actually is flawed in that way. A president cannot get his people in place quickly enough, and that's why early and robust planning is so important. I'll just give you, you know, a little data. So President Biden had a, a very, very robust transition Great people, Ted Kaufman, Jeff Zients, Johannes Abraham, they had the biggest, best organized, most robust transition ever. At day 100 of his presidency, he only had 44 Senate-confirmed officials in place. At day 200, he only had 127. That's 10% of the 1,250 positions that a president needs to get confirmed by the Senate. So essentially, if you had... A business organization like you've run, David, it would be like getting rid of the CEO, all the vice presidents, all the senior vice presidents, and having a new CEO come in and saying, replace all your people. It just, it's a flawed structure. Let's talk about the, in the remaining time we have, the last transition. Can you describe how you were talking to the Trump people about the potential transition if they were to lose the election and how that became very complicated when President Trump didn't really want to concede he had lost the election? So I was working very closely with the Biden team led by Ted Kaufman, Jeff Science, Johannes Abraham, starting in November of 2019, very early. I worked with all the Democratic candidates back then. But then once Biden emerged as the nominee, they intensified the effort. There was a fellow in the White House named Chris Liddell, who was deputy chief of staff. He's a very smart guy. He was CFO of 
General Motors and Microsoft. He was planning Trump's second term. Josh Bolton, who was Bush's former chief of staff and a friend of mine, and also a friend of Chris Liddell's, we had breakfast with Chris Liddell in the White House mess in January of 2020 to talk about his planning for the second term. And at the end of the breakfast, Josh, who's a very wise and thoughtful person, looked at Chris and said, all right, so if Trump loses, what are your plans? And there was this awkward silence. Chris looked down at his empty plate and said, I guess I have to figure that out. So that became a conversation where we worked with Chris to give him advice and support on implementing the law, which requires the outgoing administration to prepare briefing materials to organize the cabinet, to clear officials of the campaign, the challenger uh, through security clearances. There's a whole series of steps that are required. And Chris did a really good job under the radar without focus from President Trump. After the election, Trump put a pause on all transaction activities, disputed the outcome of the election. And there was this period of time when the formal transition was supposed to start, but the head of the General Service Administration, which is an obscure role, but important for transitions, refused to quote, ascertain the outcome of the election. That delayed the transition. And that delay occurred all the way up until mid-December, which slowed the transition. And finally, the political pressure was so great from Republicans that Trump acceded. So it was a flawed transition. Actually, Ken Burns and a few other historians and I have, have debated which was the second worst transition in history, uh, with obviously Buchanan to Lincoln being the worst. And there's a debate whether Hoover to Roosevelt or Trump to Biden was worse. The Biden team was effectively organized. But you know, as Ken Burns said, never before had arms been raised, troops been alerted, shots been fired, and never before had people died during the peaceful transition of power. Wow. So uh, it's an incredible story. And uh, to remind everybody, this is uh, all laid out in some oral interviews that David did with some of the leading figures in transitions, including Jim Baker, who was involved with the uh, transition with President Bush and President Reagan. The book is called The Peaceful Transfer of Power, An Oral History of America's Presidential Transitions, published by University of Virginia Press. David Marchick is the principal author of it. David, I want to thank you very much for a great conversation. And uh, my final question, is Congress likely to pass any legislation to deal with some of the things we've now learned as a result of the Biden-Trump transition or non-transition? I think there's work being undertaken in Congress with cooperation from the Partnership for Public Service to change the standard for ascertainment to provide more funds to move up some of the deadlines. Hopefully Congress should. It's, it's typically been a bipartisan effort, but because of the last election, it's been politicized a little. So hopefully Congress will do that, but it's hard to predict what Congress will do. Okay, thanks a lot, David. Thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.